This is Terms of Reference. I'm your host, Stephen Laddick. One of the things I love the most about the stories here on the Terms of Reference podcast is listening to the always incredible but retrospectively obvious paths which have led all of our age printers to their current passions. In fact, as I've documented in the ebook Making It, this is one of the factors that defines those who have created a sustainable and satisfying career in development and humanitarian aid. My guest for the 131st episode of the Terms of Reference podcast, Noam Angris, is no exception to this rule. Noam is the executive director and co-founder of Young Love, an organization that finds health-related messages that have been shown to create change through a pile of evidence, and then finds creative, culturally appropriate ways to deliver these messages for youth by youth. Now, while this model on the service may not seem groundbreaking, as you'll hear in just a minute, the results that Noam and the Young Love team are achieving in Botswana through their No Sugar program are. I spoke with Noam in Habarone. And hey, before we dive into the episode, if you like what you're hearing, take a moment to open up iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or whatever your podcast app happens to be, and click on subscribe. And also consider giving the show a rating, because it really does help. And finally, please consider sharing this episode or the podcast on Facebook or Twitter to help others get in on making aid and development better. Now on to the show with Noam. Hello, Noam. Thank you so much for being on the Terms of Reference podcast today. Hi, Stephen. Great to be here. Noam, you are, like so many of our other guests, a world traveler. Where do we find you sitting today? I am currently in Khaborone, Botswana, in the middle of a heat wave. What's a heat wave to you? Well, it's, there's been a warning from the national government, so I don't actually know the strict criteria, but it's 40 degrees Celsius. Oh, wow. wow. 40. Holy smokes. I mean, I'm, as most people know who are listening to this, I, we recently transitioned to Bangkok, so we're getting used to what real heat means, having moved here from Costa Rica. So, wow, that's interesting. Oh, wow. You are the executive director of an organization called Young Love. Why don't we start off with you telling us about what it is that uh, the focus of your organization is and, and how you deliver it. Sure. Yeah, that's great. Perhaps I can sort of describe that through sort of our, our founding story, and then I can kind of give the succinct sort of what we do. But it, it sort of comes out really clear from the story of how this all came to be in the first place. I actually, I had worked at um, organizations that evaluate what works in development, uh, the Jamil Poverty Action Lab, the World Bank. Uh, and I had come to Botswana initially uh, to do research at the University of Botswana, sort of unrelated to, to what Young Love came to be or does. And, you know, six years before, I had read a paper that was produced by the Jamil Poverty Action Lab showing that through a randomized control trial, a one-hour sugar daddy awareness class, essentially revealing the risk of older sugar daddies, older guys giving young girls gifts in exchange for for unprotected sex, revealing the risks of those guys, the HIV risk, had reduced pregnancy by almost a third. Uh, this was a randomized trial. It was very rigorous. Development economists knew about it for, for years. So I knew about that paper. And now I'm sitting in University of Botswana years later, working on something else. And uh, I have a you bunch of friends. Not, I can't let it slide. What, what were you working on? Like were you? Were you? Was it? Was it like? Was it like you know, rocket propulsion science or something? Or what was it? Not quite. (laughs) (laughs) I did go to MIT, so I have that nerdy side of me. Okay. (laughs) Um, It was uh, my when I worked at the World Bank, my boss Harry Petrino said, "Find out something interesting about Botswana using SACMEC data, which is a data set in eastern and southern Africa." 
because the government of Botswana had asked him for, for some insights on it. And I had seen this trend that was actually popularized by Malcolm Gladwell in, in one of his books, that kids' birth dates were very deterministic of how they ended up doing in school 12 years later, even if they were born a couple of days apart. So kids born slightly over the school cutoff ended up performing much, much differently than kids just born a couple of days before them, which is a very bizarre phenomenon. If you kind of just think about it, it's like, why would being born a couple of days later change your outcomes in life? I can sort of describe the theory behind that. Um, but the short version of it is the kids who are born after sort of miss the date to enroll in school six years later. So by the time they enroll, they're much, much older. And so most of the world that sort of cognitively mature and teachers invest in them and they sort of self-perpetuate and do better, uh, even though it's just determined by a birthday, sort of this random occurrence. In Botswana, they actually do much, much, much worse, which is sort of the same self-fulfilling prophecy, but in the opposite direction. So I came here to investigate that. And that's what I was sitting in my office doing at University of Botswana with two other professors uh, at University of Botswana when I sort of tumbled into young love, actually. Wow. That, I love that. I, the, the first hundred episodes of, of Terms of Reference were all about, you know, how do we sustain careers within this, in this you know, development humanitarian aid space. And I always loved the, the randomness, for, you know, to, mm. to pull your term, of, of how we end up here, right? Uh, very rarely do we, it seems like, do we choose the path that we end up falling, you know, finding ourselves on. It's very yeah. rare that I hear someone say, oh, you know, I, I totally saw this coming. I knew it was there. I went for it, uh, you know. But I love to hear that, you know, you, you read a paper six, and then six years later, you're like, hmm, maybe let's go do something about that. So, so why don't you take the story yeah. from there? Sure. And I would just say, if it's truly random, we should be able to evaluate it <laughs> <laughs> sure, as like a pseudo-randomized <laughs> trial of sorts. But yeah, definitely random. So yeah, so I'm sitting in my office, I'm running regressions on this project that I've just described, which again has nothing to do with sugar daddies, but I had read this paper. It was sort of in my mind about the sugar daddy class, but I'm actually sitting at the University of Botswana running regressions on this World Bank project I have described. But my friends who are most in Botswana keep describing these sugar daddies to me. And actually, at the end of the... So the Botswana is actually great. The government provides not only free tuition to go to university, but actually a stipend at that university. I mean, it's really remarkable. But at the end of the month, student stipends runs out. And so you would see a bunch of girls kind of towards the end of the month when the stipend has dwindled, you know, put on their heels and walk to the perimeter of the university and sort of wait for these guys in these fancy cars. It was very, very striking. Yeah, that is. And, wow, that's, that's, I can only imagine that visual, right? Yeah. And, you know, I sort of got interested in sort of, you know, are they waiting for their boyfriends, their partners, sugar daddies? What, what's kind of there? And my friends were saying, no, it's it's the sugar daddy thing. And, um, you know, this is obviously sort of just the urban version of a phenomenon. In the village, it looks quite different. It still exists, but looks quite different. And another friend of mine actually wrote this really beautiful poem, but also quite poignant, about an older guy, a sugar daddy, infecting a young girl with HIV. And I learned the startling statistic that 45% of 40 to 44-year-old men in Botswana have HIV on average, mm. almost half. And that's today? I mean, that's still today? Today. Wow. According to the Botswana AIDS Impact Survey, 2013. And, you know, they're a huge driver of the epidemic, and there's, there's many reasons that's true, but very, very high prevalence in that age group. And it just hit me. I, I sort of am sitting there, I'm hearing about this phenomenon, I'm working on something else. And this paper that I had read six years before, which was 
written by Pascaline Dupont Stanford, sort of surfaced into my head. And I was like, here was this huge problem, and here was this paper showing that there was a promising intervention addressing this problem. And they had never met. This program had never been scaled. And I'm sitting there, and I'm talking to who ended up being one of my co-founders, Moitepi Machang, and she's like, let's do it. And I was like, let's, yeah, screw these regressions. Let's actually turn this stuff on what works <laughs> into real programs helping real people. And that's how it started. And then we started going into the field and it sort of emerged from there. But that was really the motivation is to take the stuff off the shelf, which is accumulating dust, showing what works and actually get it to real people. You know, this is not an unusual story, unfortunately, right? And not an unusual story. I, I, mm. I'm lucky enough to have many colleagues around the around the business, but you know, so many times I've heard a story. It's like you know, I'm I'm working at organization X or you know, research organization Y or or or, or think tank Z, and we know these answers, right? Mm. Or or there's these products on this shelf, but they can't either commercialize it or or they don't take the effort to commercialize it or they don't take the effort to take it out and and put and here now you're saying your own initiative. Luckily, right? You basically you remembered this paper and you said, let's get out of the lab. And let's go do it as a entrepreneurial moment for you. Clearly, it was the realization that you you know you were in the in the place. You saw the phenomenon happening. You you had an energized partner. But how did you take the leap? You couldn't have just you know. I, I'm assuming you didn't just open up your wallet and said, "Let's do this." Uh, right. But what? So so just take us through that process. Like you you knew you had a mechanism to go try out. Then what? Yeah, so there were a few things. There were, does it still work? Just because it worked in Kenya 10 years ago doesn't mean it still works. So how are we going to answer that question? There were, can we actually fund this <laughs> and support this? Should we be a program, a project, an organization? What's the bigger picture here? And then can we kind of build a team around it? So one of the first kind of important moments on the can it work is we actually got into the field and into a couple schools with someone else that uh, we knew who was a very, very uh, effective peer educator who had been teaching in schools and with the Ministry of Education and the UN for a while, Tato Letsuomo. And we were seeing that when, you know, the, the dynamics of the program, the reason it seemed to have work is essentially you reveal that these older partners are riskier and in, in terms of HIV and girls didn't actually know that before. And that's, that's shocking. And that they were sort of making this cost benefit before where the benefits of the sugar daddy outweighed the cost because they didn't think they were costly. They thought they were wise, mature, married, and that revealing this risk actually shifts that cost benefit, makes them more costly than they're worth. And they, they leave these guys. They actually have choice over the age of the partner they can date and they leave these guys. That was sort of the theory behind this. And so when we got into the field, we one thing we saw was that we, we would sort of have them guess who was risky on a, on a puzzle, and then we would reveal the real rate, which is exponential. And again, you have the striking half of these guys in their 40s have HIV, and people would physically gasp, actually. It was sort of that shocking, time mm. and time and time again. And so we saw some really strong early indications that uh, the, the theory was holding, that a bunch mm -hmm. of the theory was holding, and that gave us uh, confidence beyond the initial randomized trial. So that was sort of an important piece of thinking, can this translate? And in Botswana, how, why was this so different than other AIDS interventions that were going on? Like what, what was the, can you describe or can you contrast it with other, other interventions? There's a lot of things that are sort of particular to the highly targeted nature of this intervention, which is actually seems to be linked to a true misconception 
that's also linked to what girls actually want to do. And that sort of sounds obvious, but it's quite rare. So it seems like girls wanted safer partners. They just thought they were the older guy. Hmm. And so what you're doing is you're matching the truth to girls' desires. You're not changing their desires. And you're not telling something them that they already know. So if you contrast this to, say, a program that you know, sort of tells girls to use condoms or boys to use condoms, well, they actually do know that that's a thing that's useful. They just don't want to do it for many other reasons. So saying that, again, is not very productive. <laughs> or if you're trying to kind of empower girls to negotiate for protection, for example, but then they enter a relationship with a guy who's 10 years older, it's very hard to negotiate, regardless of how skilled they might have become at it because the guy is giving them money he's physically stronger socially it's very uncomfortable and so it's about kind of figuring out that specific note of real agency and figuring out what kind of intervention can really match to people's desires to elicit behavior change so it's very well targeted i'm not sure that actually kind of went into the initial design of the intervention uh, that was tested but it does seem that those things are some of the reasons why it might have worked mm. and so we sort of saw that some of that initial stuff was holding and then we also decided because you know we are committed to evidence and we want to make sure it still works and we don't believe that one rct one place is enough that we we wanted to engage in another randomized trial to demonstrate if this truly held 10 years later in botswana and that's what we actually did with great partners the jamil poverty action lab evidence action university of botswana baylor and so we sort of engaged in that process as well and so i did you just now describe essentially the genesis of what what became young love um you sort of had some early evidence or some early success and you raised the flag and said look we'd like to do another one of these and and truly prove what we're doing and so you got a little seed funding and that's how how you got off the ground yeah i would sort of say at this stage you know the the our mission is as young love is to connect youth to proven life-saving information so it's not specific to sugar daddies actually it's not Mm -hmm. specific to hiv it's it's focused on health and education and outcomes that can save lives and are proven and have the evidence and we can actually get it to youth and our model is by youth for youth so that these proven messages can actually get the kids in the right way so that they can actually hear them and internalize them and and act on them. Uh, But yes, No Sugar, as it came to be called, the flagship program was our flagship program that we then uh, engaged in another randomized trial. And our first funder actually was DPRIZE, which is essentially sort of funding small-scale startup entre- organizations and entrepreneurs with $20,000 to take stuff that's already been proven and get it to people. Because in the social entrepreneurship space, it's often sexier to do something new instead of take something proven to more people. Uh, and so they're taking a different approach. And they were actually our first funder. So for six months, we operated with no funding. We just had incredible folks on staff who volunteered their time. But our first infusion of cash was from DeepRise. That is awesome. So take us from that first, you know, the, the sugar daddy or no sugar project, your flagship, to what things look like today and what you're looking for for the future. How has this, you know, let's take a proven model or take a proven piece of research or, or whatever, piece of evidence, that's the word I'm looking for, and take that out mm-hmm. and, and deliver it through youth, you know, deliver better health outcomes through youth. How is that going to be enacted over the next five years? What do you see changing in your model or, or continuing to be successful? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, we we see ourselves as a portfolio organization. So one of our big pieces of work is trying to identify programs in addition to No Sugar that have this early promising evidence and then thinking about what it is that gives us confidence that they'll work across context, they'll be externally valid as well as internally valid. And then thinking about do they fit our model best delivered by youth for youth. We care about scale. So we're working through government schools and need government interest and buy-in and information delivery programs that have preventative 
impact and not sort of medicating people after the fact. Uh, and so looking at programs that fit that criteria and seeing which ones we can bring to scale in Botswana and beyond. Uh, and we do see ourselves kind of going regional, Eastern and Southern Africa. And so, so thinking beyond, so we've already started pilots in Zimbabwe, in South Africa, in Zambia, and sort of thinking about the next best country for us to enter uh, and with, with which program. We have a couple kind of shortlisted programs that we're exploring quite actively, which I can describe. Uh, and it's been really interesting to think about, you know, what, what will translate across contexts, what's externally valid, where the science is a little bit newer, actually, opposed to randomized trials establishing the internal validity of does it work? It sort of does it work everywhere all, all the time. That's kind of a hard thing. There's nothing that actually fits that. But does it generally hold so that it can actually scale? Mm-hmm. We'll take us through. What are a couple of those initiatives? Yeah, so one of them is called Teaching at the Right Level, which, you know, there's about six to eight randomized trials from India with Pratham from Ghana, uh, which was actually done by IPA and the government there, uh, called Tikai, and uh, in Kenya, uh, a similar intervention there that shows that sort of as opposed to all of these inputs, you know, giving kids textbooks, uh, building nice schools, just making sure that kids aren't just taught at their grade level, but they're actually taught what they need to know seems to have transformative impact. So focusing on the quality of, of learning and how they're learning, not just these inputs, and, and making sure that kids actually are essentially learning two plus two before four times four, or uh, learning how to read letters before they're being asked to read paragraphs, that that sort of makes a world of a difference when many other interventions don't seem to move the needle. Very, very simple concept. Uh, and so it's information delivery. It seems to work best when delivered by youth working in government and school systems and seems to really move the needle on on learning, which we see as, as a life-saving outcome. And actually one of the most important things to prevent HIV because it keeps you in school. Huh. I mean, that's befuddlingly simple, right? So and how is it delivered? You, know, you say youth to youth. How does that end up working? Is it just that you had youthful teachers or is, what's, what's that mechanism? So the really powerful thing about this program, actually, is it's been delivered along a lot of models with teachers, with young volunteers, many different iterations, and the principles seem to hold. It seems to work best when delivered by actual youth agents, but regardless, this leveling of kids to their actual level seems to to be quite substantial. Uh, but it does seem that youth agents are most effective at getting that impact. Mm. We could describe you as a disruptor, right, in that you're approaching and solving a problem in a different way. But are you seeing a trend towards this? Are you seeing, do you have peers and colleagues, obviously you mentioned IPA, Evidence Action, you know, other organizations that we've had on this show ourselves. Are you seeing a trend towards doing business or delivering aid and development through this mechanism that you have? I mean, you mentioned DeepRise earlier is one funder that is specifically sort of trying to buck the trend of saying, we don't want something new. We want something that's, that's grounded in this way. Do you feel like you're an outlier? Or do you feel like you're you're kind of part of the the future trend? We definitely feel like we're part of a movement for sure, and and sort of an emerging ecosystem around this. I think there's still a lot of learning around this concept of what works. What is it that's working? And you know, something we've been thinking about is there's this tension between academics producing things that are interesting versus knowing that something is true. So for example, producing something that's interesting is sort of a randomized trial that shows that a program does this or doesn't do this, and then therefore we can say something about human behavior. But you're seeing less replication of that initial randomized trial. 
showing that that is true across many countries in many places, so that, that it's actually true. You're seeing sort of the, the world of academia produce a lot of single randomized trials around various things that seem to work, but not kind of a broader set of replicated findings or more generalizable human behavior. Maybe that comes from multiple RCTs or replications. Maybe that comes from a really good understanding of theory, but something that seems to be more true broadly as opposed to just interesting and sort of publication worthy. And so one thing that we're really interested in is working with partners to kind of bridge this last mile of evidence where it's sort of you start with something that works and then you also figure out if that's really holding across countries and across places. And then then you have sort of the bandwidth, the scale, because it does seem that the delivery agent matters. It does seem that the context matters, which is not surprising. And so thinking about how to bridge that last mile of evidence gap uh, is really key for us. And we see ourselves as a potential vehicle in bridging that gap and then taking that to scale, whatever is found that is working. Uh, but definitely feel like we're part of a movement, but that there's still a lot of learning about this concept of what is it that actually works? Is it a package? Is it a theory? How does it shift when you move? All of that stuff. We feel like there's a lot more to learn there. Mm. And when you take this to either potential funders or, or the funders that you already have, is it an easier conversation or do you still find that you have the usual barriers? Or are you just kind of getting in line with everybody else or, or are, is it more receptive because you can show up and say, look, this, here's what we've done. Here's the results. You know, here's where we're going next. How are you seeing that working these days? In terms of funders, you know, it's, it's interesting. There's sort of a split landscape, I would say, because we're engaging both with governments as and sort of partners locally, as well as sort of the international evidence-based donor scene. And I would definitely say that there's sort of in-country a desire for organizations that can implement at quality at scale. And internationally, some of the donors we've engaged with care a lot about evidence, but are sort of happy a lot with this, this piece of like one RCT being sort of the gold standard. And so there is a little bit of a tension there. It's sort of, do you restrict yourself from growing as a startup organization to sort of work within the framework of what works from these donors? Or do you meet the government's demand to be a, a implementer that has grown and is reaching a lot of kids? So there's a really interesting kind of tension between those two different types of funders and partner organizations that we are trying to balance. You know, another thing I would say, which is sort of, is is this funding of evidence about a program or about an organization? So uh, is it that the program works or that the organization is committed to learning? So one thing that we would like to see shift is donors funding, not just a particular program that seems to have evidence for working, but an organization that is committed to rigorous learning that's sort of iterative time and time again. And so you don't get this scenario where it's sort of once-off program, once-off program. I think the subtext there, or you know, if I read between the lines, is you're saying the organization matters, right? So, uh, for instance, in the, the No Sugar campaign or, sorry, intervention that you have, you can't just sort of drop it into any any organization and they could just roll it out and make it work around the world. There's, there is a quality to your commitment to it and your longevity with it, your history, your understanding that probably increases its impact or, or guarantees its impact? Like, am I getting that right? Yeah, well, so uh, let me kind of, kind of give a concrete example. So say, so something we've learned that's been really powerful uh, in our learning is, so what was costly in Kenya 10 years ago, I'll use the no sugar example, was HIV. It was life-threatening. And so when you reveal that these older guys had HIV, you know, it was a cost. It was a cost that outweighed the benefits and girls shifted away. Today in Botswana, which is an excellent thing, HIV is less costly because there's antiretroviral medication, which means you can have HIV and be healthy and live a long life. And so getting HIV is less costly. 
And so if what matters is cost, the cost of these older partners, well, the cost has changed. And so maybe you now need an intervention that tells girls that these older guys are likely to put them at risk of pregnancy because that might be the salient cost mm, for the girl. Mm-hmm. So then what you're doing is you're moving away from the sort of static sense of this program with this version of what's costly to girls is what worked to this is the underlying principle why this worked. And we now need to tweak the modality of how that comes to life in Botswana 10 years later and invest in that. But there's a little bit of resistance to it. So for example, even when we adapted the program from Kenya to Botswana, we actually were so nervous about changing it because it was we sort of thought it was the package that worked that we didn't even change the 10-year-old video <laughs> that was in the intervention showing a young girl overcoming a sugar daddy. This is a video that is Kenyan specific. You know, it's sort of going to say, yeah, I mean, uh, with, yeah. And so, you know, it's like, so again, this is sort of comes back to the notion is, are we investing in rigorous learning or like a particular package or static kind of intervention? Is there a way that you see an eventuality, for instance, with like the no sugar campaign, where it becomes the intervention that's either, you know, taught in schools or it's something that the government takes over? Or is this something, you know, I'm just kind of trying to take the logical next step from what we were just talking about. Does this embed you for life in in Botswana, you know, at least, you know, for anybody's foreseeable future? Uh, Or is there a way for this to become a a sort of a standard ops for for other organizations or the government in general? So we absolutely hope that what we're learning from, you know, we have another set of results coming from our most recent randomized trial uh, about no sugar in Botswana. We absolutely hope those lessons filter out to many, many people working on the sugar daddy phenomenon. So South Africa's government just launched a $300 million anti-sugar daddy campaign. We absolutely hope to share our lessons with the government if they're interested and and for that to inform their work to hopefully make it more evidence-based and impactful. And we sort of, one of the things we're terming this is we care about program attribution, did it work, and organizational contribution. You know, we don't have to be the ones to do it. We are happy to share with another organization doing it. And so, you know, that, that's very key. And there's already kind of early things we're seeing. The results will come out soon. But, you know, in addition to kind of this HIV cost thing, which seems to have changed, another one is that the sugar daddies seem to not be in their mid-40s, but actually in their mid-20s. And so they're 10 years older than the girls, but they're not in their mid-40s. They're actually kind of young, they're sexy, you know, and the girls don't really classify them as sugar daddies but they're still much riskier in terms of HIV and they can negotiate for unprotected sex. And so thinking about those dynamics as they evolve and change is really critical. And so, you know, the future that we see for sort of the sugar daddy work is kind of continual adaptation and evolving towards getting age mates to have safer relations with each other, but using the evidence to make sure that that program is sort of relevant and really working to the full extent. And we think that that's going to be a many year long learning journey. And then at the same time as an organization as Young Love, bringing in these other programs like Teaching at the Right Level, which are uh, sort of ready for scale and have a larger set of evidence from cross contexts and across models and working with the government to bring those to scale in Botswana and beyond. Mm. So what's your biggest challenge as someone who's trying to do do things a little differently or you know you're breaking a model you're you've got open source research that you're you know you want to share you know, data sharing is a big problem in the industry what are your biggest challenges aside from the obvious you know keeping the lights on the funding why don't you just describe some of those for us 
Yeah, I would say one of them is something I've alluded to earlier, which has been quite interesting, is we work really closely with the government in Botswana. So, you know, we have a mandate from the Ministry of Education to reach all kids in the country. We have a standing seat on the National AIDS Council. We have an advisory forum chaired by the permanent secretary of the Ministry of Education. And the government wants a partner who's delivering in schools, but will only deliver something that we believe has evidence and can actually have impact. And so, you know, there's sort of this this kind of, are you generating demand with the government and the, and the partners that you need to scale without supplying it because you're worried about kind of creating that evidence first. And so there is sort of a little bit of tension between evidence production and scale, especially as it relates to the practical realities of working with your government partners and working uh, with your team as well, because you have a team to run and engage, et cetera. And so that tension is really interesting. And so how do you sequence that? Does it happen in parallel? Is it sequential? Really, really interesting and challenging. And the other thing that's interesting and challenging about it is as a bottom-up organization, a startup kind of social enterprise, how do you grow? So for example... If you have a program that you already think is ready for explosive growth, then that's straightforward. But if you're trying to generate evidence as you're growing, well, you don't want to deliver something to a kid that you don't believe in. And so how do you then grow in that context? And so that's something that we're navigating. Have you experienced any challenges with changes in government or not only appointees, but just career people? Has that been something that you've had to address? Yeah, absolutely. So we've learned very quickly that there is... Uh, a lot of motion uh, among our key partners. And so, you know, something we've worked really hard to do is establish structures and systems that facilitate partnerships. So one of the reasons we actually, we set up this year an advisory forum with key folks from the Ministry of Education, Ministry of Health, Ministry of Youth, PEPFAR, the UN, uh, the University of Botswana, is because we wanted links to institutions and positions in addition to kind of individual people. And so, you know, that way, if someone is sort of moved to another office, we still have a relationship with that institution. Similarly, this is one of the reasons we've worked hard to get a seat on technical working groups in the government and, and councils. It's to have that structure that sort of enables you to, to persist and have longstanding relationships with institutions and positions in addition to people. Mm, you kind of led me to my next question. I don't know. Let, let's see. So I, I always end each interview with two questions. And the first is, who do you pay attention to? to make sure that not only that you're kind of on the cutting edge of what you need to know, but also just to stay fresh and, you know, maybe make that next discovery, that, that, that next sugar daddy piece of, you know, either research paper or maybe it's a, you know, maybe it's a blog post. Are there blogs you read, magazines, articles, newspapers, uh, podcasts, things that you'd recommend to our listeners that have been valuable to you? I might say something you might not expect. I like the unexpected. That's what we're here for. I would say the young people we work with, honestly, youth, the youth first. You know, I think it's really important to just get into the field and see what the kids, what's on their mind. And that provides a feedback that's critical. And so one of the things that's really refreshing and rejuvenating is, you know, for example, we were taking a bunch of these lessons that I've described to you about No Sugar, and we were creating kind of an updated version of the program into the field. And we asked the kids, what have you learned? And what we were trying to get across there is that anyone older is riskier, not just these 40-year-old guys trying to get at other costs. And they said, we learned age to age. And then they all kind of resoundingly said, age to age, age to age, age to age. And that actually got at the concept that we were trying to get at brilliantly. And that came from, from the kids. 
And we had actually been trying to brainstorm sort of a placeholder name for this kind of 2.0 version. And we would, hadn't succeeded. And we got into the field and the kids literally came up with the perfect name. Mm. So that was really a beautiful example. I, you know, we have this entree youth first. And I think that that's really refreshing. You know, in addition, of course, to kind of following the, the evidence world and blogs, we're really close partners with Evidence Action, with JPAL. We get great advice also from big NGOs that have sort of grown from nothing to something huge like Mothers to Mothers, One Acre Fund, Pratham, uh, but really youth first, you know, that that's where it all happens. My last question is a moment for you to sort of geek out and think outside of what you do on your day to day. But is there something out there? You kind of mentioned a couple organizations there, uh, Mother to Mother, One Acre Fund. But is there an innovation, a shiny object, something cool coming down the pipe that maybe you know about that specifically in the, the aid and development space that, that you think deserves a shout out that people should know about? We're sort of anti-shiny object. <laughs> I think that's, that's sort of the disruption we're trying to do, which is you know, almost focusing more on these programs like Teaching at the Right Level, which have been around, seem to work, and need to get to more kids. And so I think it really does come back to uh, looking at what's out there, what's been tried and tested, and, and what's likely to work and should get to more people. Uh, and so I think it is that list. Let me ask it a different way. Is there something that's not a shiny object, but one of these these pieces that's not uh, you know the two programs you described that you can't wait to get your sink your teeth into? Yeah, I would, so another one we've thought a lot about and uh, have have been talking about and kind of engaging with early days is creating demand for male circumcision. And so there's really good evidence showing that if guys get circumcised, it has a sixty percent preventative measure for HIV. And so that's that's quite pr- promising. Uh, but the challenge is getting kids to actually line up at the door and get circumcised. And so if there was an RCT showing that there was evidence to bridge that gap, that would be really powerful. And actually, Grassroots Soccer, an organization that we admire and have been having conversations with, does seem to have some early evidence that that's, that's promising. And so we've been seeing if that's a possible intervention that might be really high impact. Uh, and so that that's one that we're also currently exploring. And just looking at these behavior changes and programs where it sort of requires this this nudge, this small shift towards big impact that has that evidence and focuses on young people. Noam, I hope that the heat wave breaks soon for you, but thank you so much for being on the show today. I really appreciate it. <laughs> My pleasure. Thank you. You've been listening to the Terms of Reference podcast from aidpreneur.com. Subscribe to us on iTunes. Yay!